Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we are talking with Vivian Salama, national security reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Vivian has reported from over 70 countries, including Egypt, Yemen, Pakistan, Israel, and the Palestinian territories, the United Arab Emirates, and Iraq, where she was bureau chief for the Associated Press. Her experience covering the refugee crisis in the region inspired her to write a children's book called The Long Journey Home about an innocent Syrian boy who was forced to flee his home because of the war there. Vivian has a law degree from Georgetown University, a master's from Columbia in Islamic politics, and speaks fluent Arabic. Since moving to Washington in 2016, Vivian has covered the White House and national politics for the Wall Street Journal, NBC News, and the Associated Press with a focus on foreign policy. Vivian will preview what we can expect from the Biden administration on the Middle East at the UN General Assembly and beyond including the impact, if any, on the U.S. rift with France on regional diplomacy, if the Iran nuclear deal still has a pulse, and whether the conflicts in Yemen, Syria, and Libya are any closer to resolution. My conversation with Vivian Salama begins now. Vivian, welcome to On the Middle East. So great to be with you. Great to have you. Before we get into some of the specific Middle East issues this week, let's set the scene for this year's General Assembly, which kicks off this week. COVID is top of the agenda, and approximately 100 or so world leaders, including President Biden, are speaking live at the UN. Many are participating virtually. The Biden administration comes into the General Assembly following the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, the return of the Taliban and as well as a major diplomatic snafu with the French over the Australia submarine deal, all of which may be giving some allies and partners some pause about U.S. commitments. So big picture, what are the Biden administration's goals and expectations this week? Biden will speak tomorrow, Tuesday, and return to Washington soon after. But a scaled-down delegation led by Secretary Blinken will remain. What's on the agenda? Well, President Biden is going to be addressing his first U.N. General Assembly since he's become president. And it's worth noting that the world is a very different place now than it was when he was vice president. A lot has changed. And so not least of which we're sort of in the middle of this ongoing global pandemic, which we thought a couple of months ago seemed to be sort of on the mend. And then um, we hit a spike again with the Delta variant. And so President Biden definitely going to prioritize that as far as finding global solutions to combating uh, the COVID-19 virus pandemic and, and, and the variants of it, especially a vaccine effort to get developing countries vaccinated and whatnot. But of course, that comes with the backdrop of trying to get people in the United States uh, vaccinated too. And so he's going to be taking on like a very careful dance and trying to promote vaccinations 
while also emphasizing uh, U.S. interests uh, with regard to vaccines and booster shots and and, and such. And so that's going to be one of his top priorities. But sort of more broadly, um, from a, a geopolitical standpoint, President Biden came to office really trying to tout this image of pro-multilateralism, trying to strengthen alliances, um, trying to really contrast what his administration planned to do from his predecessor, uh, former President Donald Trump, um, who ruffled feathers with some allies uh, and had uh, tense relations, even with some of the most steadfast allies in Europe, especially. And it's been interesting because we're now uh, about nine months into this administration's time in office, or eight months, sorry, into the administration's time in office. And a lot of those relationships haven't really turned around in the way that I think a lot of people were expecting. Uh, tensions with China are, are growing by the day, and the, the Biden administration has not only supported some of the tough stances that uh, the Trump administration took on China, but has actually doubled down and added to it crackdowns on human on their human rights record and, and things like that, which the Trump administration didn't quite do as much. And so you have that growing tension that has become a global concern shared with allies. But the approach to China has been different between the U.S. and its allies, uh, especially some in Europe. And, and that has caused some issues, including, as you mentioned, this diplomatic row with France, which we can get to in a moment. But China, you know, confronting China is at the heart of that as well. So you have that issue. You have the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, which took place just last month, where NATO allies felt that they were sort of left on a lurch uh, when the U.S. decided to withdraw from Afghanistan. They really had no choice but to withdraw as well. And the nature of the U.S. withdrawal with regard to getting uh, support staff, Afghan support staff that helped the U.S. and its allies in the cor- over the course of this 20-year war, how they were going to evacuate them vis-a-vis the very rapid takeover by the Taliban. That just created a really difficult situation for all these countries. And so there was a lot of anger and resentment, A, about how it was done, but also B, what happens to Afghanistan now from a counterterrorism perspective. And so that's going to be something not only that President Biden is definitely going to address in his speech on Tuesday, but also behind the scenes in these bilateral meetings with certain leaders that he's meeting, um, as well as with the UN Secretary General on Monday. Those conversations are definitely going to come up because now you have a humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, as well as a security crisis that a lot of people are concerned, a lot of countries are concerned about. And then finally, just in terms of economic cooperation and trying to get the world sort of back on its feet post pandemic and things like that, trade, cyber cooperation, a lot of those issues also ultimately going to come up as well. And so those are probably the the main uh, themes that we're going to be seeing as we go into this um, important week um, where President Biden is taking the stage at the UN for the first time. Vivian, how does the diplomatic role with France affect U.S. initiatives in the Middle East, if it does at all. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron has been active in the Middle East, especially in Lebanon, and he participated in the regional summit in Iraq in August as well. So this is going to be really interesting to watch moving forward. And for folks who aren't following it so closely, last week, the U.S. and the U.K. announced a joint initiative whereby they would get into a deal with Australia to provide um, them with nuclear powered submarines which the U.S. refused to say was uh, an effort to sort of police 
the Asian waters uh, with the growing threats posed by China. It was a strategic move by both the U.S. and the U.K., but that's ultimately, you know, reading between the lines what this deal had had intended to do. The French immediately firing back at the U.S., very angry by this deal. They said that the Australians had gotten into a deal with them for conventional submarines and then canceled the deal in order to get into um, this this deal with the U.S. and the U.K. And immediately following that, um, the, the French announced that they were recalling their ambassador to the U.S., for consultation uh, on the matter. And that's a really uh, unprecedented move by France to do to the US, I just say, signaling how upset they were. But interestingly, that this comes you know, with a lot of questions. The Middle East is a place where the US and France um, cooperate on a number of military initiatives. Uh, I remember years back when I was based in uh, the United Arab Emirates and the French and the US used to conduct joint military exercises to train the UAE military. And that's something that we see across the region. Uh, The French have a very apt Air Force and and the US used to really rely heavily on them for a lot of those training exercises and whatnot. They're also uh, very good at, uh, they they produce a lot of uh, very uh, high-tech jets and other military equipment. And so they are a leading contender for uh, military equipment in the world, but ultimately a lot of countries tend to side with the US on these areas because the US is probably unrivaled in terms of its own technologies. And so it's going to be interesting to see moving forward because there is a lot of military cooperation between the U.S. and France, not just from the business perspective, but the military and intelligence perspective in the Middle East, especially both um, countries obviously having a lot of interest in the Middle East. And so whether or not it's impacted or not remains to be seen. Now, Sources I've been speaking to indicate that this is uh, probably just going to last a couple of days. The French are angry, but ultimately they know that the alliance is way too important to burn the bridge with the U.S., given how many initiatives they have together all over the world. But, um, you know, just the fact that they would even recall their ambassador signifies um, a level of anger that we really haven't seen. And a lot of it, mind you, just a, a final point, a lot of that is is speaks to uh, President Macron of France's personality too. He's uh, increasingly wanting to assert France as sort of this leader in the world, um, definitely a leader in in Europe, but even a leader in the world. Um, And he has taken an an interesting tact with both Presidents Trump and Biden in terms of kind of this bromance that you used to see with a lot of touching and hugging and sort of affection and smiles um, at the beginning. But then he tends to take a very tough line with them once they sort of go off course with them with President Trump. It was over Iran. And now we see this um, incident with President Biden. And so um, that that relationship is going to be interesting to watch too, um, especially since President Macron also has a lot of interests in the Middle East and and, and, uh, North Africa, especially. And so whether or not he gets the Biden administration to kind of play ball with him on those issues, we'll see how that unfolds. Let's stay on COVID for a minute. According to Johns Hopkins University, only about 14 to 15 percent of the people in the world are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. In advanced economies, the number is over 40 percent. And in low-income countries, it's actually hovering around 2%. If your population's not vaccinated, your economies are unlikely to turn around. Perhaps uh, not surprisingly, in the Middle East, the countries with the lowest vaccination rates are Egypt, Iraq, Oman, Iran, and Tunisia. There are also no good statistics on Libya. The West Bank and Gaza obviously are lagging, while the Gulf and Israel have fared better. 
What do you expect this week's and beyond for those countries in the Middle East struggling with COVID? And how do you see COVID impacting the trajectory of the Middle East and North Africa economic situation? The Biden administration faces this double-edged sword of wanting to promote its vaccine programs, get people vaccinated around the world, because obviously with travel and, uh, you know, just business uh, endeavors and whatnot, it's going to be more helpful to have a safer world out there. Um, And also um, promoting its own vaccines, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, um, and other U.S. companies, to to have those vaccines dispersed around the world versus alternatives like the Russian vaccine or the Chinese vaccine, uh, you know there 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 is a bit of vaccine diplomacy going on, and it's um it's something that's a very touchy subject when you talk to the White House about it because they're very keen on getting U.S. vaccines in the arms of people around the world, but they don't actually want to say it that way because they it makes it sound too much like a business endeavor. Um, but then you have the situation back in the U.S. where, you know, the U.S. is struggling to get um, people in uh, certain states, especially uh, vaccinated. Obviously, it's become a very political issue in the United States. And so booster shots, uh, the Biden administration kind of hoping that they can keep the booster shots um uh, domestic uh, for for the time being, uh, until they really um, find uh, get enough of the population in the U.S. vaccinated in order to start kind of promoting it and sending them abroad. All of this is to say that it's caused a lot of slowdowns in terms of travel, in terms of um, business, uh, and just moving of goods and people and everything. Everything kind of came to a screeching halt for a little while there last year. Um, and it's, while it's picked up, it's nowhere near some of the levels that we have seen. Um, you know, the U.S. is now um, wanting to open its uh, borders once again to European travelers and trying to kind of um, get that back and going. But for a year and a half now, we've closed our borders to the Canadians, to the Mexicans, to, you know, all of our neighbors and closest allies. Um, and that goes for the Middle East, too. And that obviously uh, creates a lot of problems. And then you have developing world, which is completely on a different um level uh, than, than, than the developed world, as you said, Egypt, Iran, Iraq, those countries that um, already had enough problems before COVID um, with regard to being able to support its population, its economies, and just feeding people in some cases, um, problems with violence, problems with, you know, civil, civil unrest and things like that. Um, these are all various aspects Um that can really uh, concern the governments in these parts of the world. I mean, so much of what we saw, for example, in the Arab Spring, I mean, we used to call it the bread, the bread protests, uh, because people were literally, you know, fighting for respect, but also for just to be able to um, uh, have a decent standard of living in Egypt and in Tunisia and these countries. And, um, uh, and, and so, they 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 took to the streets because of that and and the pandemic essentially exacerbates any progress that was made since then uh, what little progress in some of these countries was made since then um and so there's a lot of concern that um this could really take a number of countries back um it is definitely you know countries like afghanistan you know kind of more broadly than the middle east but yemen also 
countries that were just in the worst of conditions before the pandemic. And now you sprinkle on an, an, a global pandemic where the healthcare system comes under uh, strain, the economy comes under strain, travel is limited. Um, it's a really dire situation and a large part of, of the Middle East, um, especially since we're talking about the Middle East. And so uh, the Biden administration certainly looking for solutions to that they've um they've uh, provided uh vaccines to a number of these countries trying to help um alleviate the situation but you're dealing with countries like Egypt and Iraq um Iran where the populations are enormous um and it, it's it's really just um, not enough to really combat what these countries are having to deal with. And so it's an ongoing crisis uh, that doesn't seem to be getting any better. And especially now that we're talking about a very aggressive um, variant of, of the virus, um, it, it, you know, the story continues and will continue for, for a while now. Vivian, the Biden administration came to office with two priorities in the Middle East, Iran and Yemen. And let's start with Iran. There was a dash to make the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA, or Iran nuclear deal, which the Trump administration withdrew from in May 2018. There was an effort to make that deal whole again by this summer, while Iranian President Hassan Rouhani was still in power. So much for that. We now have a new, more hardline president in Iran, Ibrahim Raisi. What can we expect with regard to the Iran nuclear talks, not just this week, but also in coming months? Do you think a a deal is in the works or possible or has that ship sailed? I don't want to say it's sailed, but to the the motor of that ship is definitely uh, running and ready to leave the dock um, soon. The Biden administration has been growing increasingly frustrated with Iran's um, failure to comply with um, levels of uranium enrichment and just its uh, defiance of the old JCPOA agreement. Obviously, they point to their um, predecessor, the Trump administration, for having exited the deal and exacerbated the situation, created this um, the, the incentive for Iran to sort of violate um, and, and fail to comply. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, Iran, in their mind, is nowhere near the levels that it should be for them to even seriously engage engage. And um, despite the fact that there was an agreement set by the IEA last week where um, that seemed to kind of uh, signal that Iran was going to come back in uh, to cooperate, basically come back to the table a little bit more, um, the Biden administration privately is sort of shaking their heads and saying that they're not optimistic about it. Now, we do have talks coming Continuing um, with uh, our the U.S. envoy Rob O'Malley, uh, Rob Malley, sorry, President Trump used to call him O'Malley, and so I would um, I would repeat that sometimes. Sorry, um, Rob Malley is going to be. Um, is going to be taking the lead and on those talks as he has been, um, and trying to find a solution uh, to this crisis, this problem of getting Iran on board. But at the end of the day, um, it, it, they are so far away from being anywhere near where the Biden administration would, what, what the Biden administration would consider a reasonable um, level to uh, start engaging in serious discussions that, uh, that privately they're, they're not, they're not optimistic about it happening anytime soon. And so then the question becomes, 
what do you do next? Do you just sort of leave this whole situation hanging or do you start taking punitive action? And, uh, you know, there, there is a sense um, in Washington that some punitive measures may begin to start rolling out toward the end of this year or early next year if we don't see drastic changes on the side of the Iranians. And what do I mean? Sanctions, essentially. Um, and so it's it's not a it's not a it's not an ideal situation. The Biden administration obviously wanting to get some sort of a deal and seeing Iran come back to the levels that they were at maybe in 2016, although um, they'd love to see it even better than that. But they just feel like the situation has gone so, um, you know, so off the, the rails with Iran that it's it's going to be hard and it's not going to be something that is going to turn around or kind of magically happen in the first or even second year in office. Um, the other issue is that President Biden is not President Obama in terms of just this sense of um, embracing JCPOA in its former form. Uh, President Obama was very keen on it. Um, whereas President Biden, um, and we've seen this with Afghanistan, we've seen this with a lot of other countries, Cuba as well, um, he tends to be a little bit more skeptical about some of these um, authoritarian regimes and um, is very wary about engaging with them and um, getting into agreements with them. Um, and that that is the case with Iran as well. And so President Biden um, ultimately um, not as much in a rush to get a deal um, as perhaps his predecessor who used to talk about deals all the time. And that was sort of his, his vernacular for kind of getting uh, agreements with foreign countries. It's let's get a deal. President Biden is not one to rush into a deal just for the sake of a deal. Um, in fact, he's, he's kind of slow to it because of the fact that he's not completely uh, on board with the idea of having a quote unquote deal with Iran. He'd like to see Iran in compliance um, and, and, and scaling down its nuclear program and stopping uranium enrichment and whatnot. But he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily want to be engaging with the, the, the Iranians. And so this is like the, the other distinguishing factor that will be really interesting to see how it plays out is sort of um, whether or not there's that incentive by the Biden White House to really get this um, over the finish line in a, um, anytime soon. Um, and as long as the Iranians are dragging their feet, it's not going to happen. With regard to the meetings this week, the new Iranian foreign minister, Hussein Amir Abdulrahian, will be attending the sessions. Do you think there will be any diplomacy around his appearance? And you mentioned, you know, President Trump was eager to get a deal. And two years ago, when the last UNGA was held, in person prior to the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, there was a real flurry when President Macron tried to arrange or broker a meeting between Trump and then Iranian President Rouhani that didn't happen. Do you see any sense of diplomatic flurry in the coming week with the foreign minister, the new Iranian foreign minister in town? Oh, my God, Andrew, you brought back some memories. I was the pool reporter with President Trump because I was a White House reporter at the time um, during the UNGA in 2019. And when we started hearing from sources that there was a potential that President Macron was going to broker this meeting at the Trump Tower in New York with uh, President Rouhani, um, we were running around like chickens with our heads cut off in the streets because it was so huge. Um, and 
the, just the the symbolism of it, everything about it would have been enormous. But then again, President Trump also met with Kim Jong-un. And so anything was possible um, at that time. That's not going to happen with President Biden. Let's like be very clear that President Biden, when it comes to that kind of thing, um, he is not going to hold a meeting uh, with the new Iranian president. It's just not going to happen. But you can bet that there's definitely, you know, we uh, we know Mali's talking to uh, the administration, trying the, the Iranian regime, trying to um, to to get a deal um, in the works, or at least uh, you know, kind of jumpstart the talks that are dragging at this point. Um, there's definitely diplomacy having happening behind the scene, and that's um, that's probably another um, another big difference that um, with the Biden administration and the Obama administration, and something probably that you know the Trump administration gets credit for is that they are much more upfront about talks with countries that are not allies that don't have diplomatic relations with the US um they're much more willing to kind of be honest about back channel discussions they are have they been talking about same similar back channel discussions with the north koreans in terms of trying to get talks underway and things like that and so um in in the old days you wouldn't even acknowledge something like that until you had something more concrete. And now um, the administration is very open to say, yes, we are talking to them. We're trying. Um, I'm sure there are going to be discussions behind the scenes at UNGA um, by U.S. and Iranian officials in an attempt to see if we can kind of get things moving in the right direction. But any leader to leader meetings, forget about it. Like It's not going to happen. President Biden won't do it. Vivian, uh, let's turn to Yemen, and I'm going to preface this question by noting that eight years ago, you wrote a piece on Yemen for El Monitor, so we are proud to call you a former contributor. Uh, the Biden administration removed some of the terrorist designations on the Iran-backed Houthi forces back in January or February, very early in the administration. But the Houthis have shown no interest in any reciprocal goodwill, at least to this point. The U.S. has also appointed an envoy for Yemen, Timothy Lenderking. A U.N. Human Rights Council report this month described, however, a continued, quote, climate of fear over the past year in Yemen, including airstrikes by the Saudi-led coalition that supports the Yemeni government and, I'm quoting again, indiscriminate shelling of civilians, particularly by the Houthis, but also by the government of Yemen and the coalition. This is a major humanitarian disaster, tragedy for the world. Any chance of action here? And how do you see uh, the prospects for resolution of the Yemen conflict in the coming months? I have to tell you, the Yemenis have never caught a break. I, talking about indiscriminate shellings uh, and humanitarian crisis. I mean, for as long as I've covered Yemen, that seems to be a theme. It just depends on who's doing the shelling and um, you know what is kind of exacerbating the humanitarian crisis. That that part has shifted um, over the years, but Yemen is a disaster. Um, and unfortunately, it's one that doesn't get a lot of coverage. You, El Monitor, you all have been wonderful at, at covering it, but um, a lot of the mainstream U.S. media, uh, unfortunately, doesn't have it on its radar. And so the situation gets worse by the day. What was more is that um, the Saudi government uh, on, in the days of the Trump administration was sort of given carte blanche uh, on, on a lot of issues. At one point, the Trump administration finally had to intervene and say, okay, guys, can you take it easy on Yemen? Because the situation just appeared to be so horrible and, and, and deteriorating by, by the minute. Um, but for the most part, 
the Saudis um, were able to um, to engage in, in in this relentless military um, assault on uh, on Yemen, which it you know the Saudis insist is a measure of national security. They say the Houthis keep on attacking Saudi Arabia, and so this is um, a necessary action uh, for them to protect um, protect their 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 country. Um, also keep in mind that um, the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, yeah, used to be in charge of national security matters in the country. And so he's um, also been a very, very heavy handed when it comes to the Yemen situation. And so that's sort of the background um, uh, information kind of context going into where we are now. The Biden administration, President Biden himself kind of was very committed to finding a solution to the Yemen crisis. He used to talk about it a lot with his transition team. I was getting, you know, constant um, uh, messages from folks on his team who knew that I covered Yemen. They were saying, you know, this is something that's going to be a priority for him when he comes into office. Um, And so, like you said, he assigned an envoy uh, rather quickly into his time in office. And and, uh, Tim Lenderking is, is someone who had a lot of rapport with the Saudis in particular. And so that was seen as, um, a huge um, bit of leverage, especially since the Biden administration sort of had estranged relations with the Saudis um, over its human rights record, over um, the killing of uh, journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Um, they wanted to see that they wanted Tim to kind of go in there and um, ease tensions with the Saudis sort of behind the scenes and try to find a solution to the Yemen crisis. But in the meantime, the Houthis have been... Um, Reluctant, um, or maybe reluctance not the word, but defiant is probably the better word. Um, the the Houthis have not uh, shown any desire to really um, settle any of these matters and find a peace deal, or even engage in a potential talks that would lead to a peace deal. And so, um, there's been growing frustration with the Biden administration, the State Department. I mean, there's been growing frustration by the Biden administration with the Houthis. The Biden, um, Ned, Ned Price, the spokesman for the State Department came out a couple of weeks ago um, to the mic uh, and, and said that they were pretty fed up with the Houthis. And, um, and the situation has just gotten worse by the day. And so finding a solution for, for the Biden administration, while still um, a very important matter and something that's talked about, um, we haven't really seen any breakthroughs yet in their time in office. So, um, and whether or not the Houthis and the Saudis are, are, are willing to kind of engage, that remains to be seen. The Saudis um, say publicly and privately that they want a solution, but um, the, the airstrikes continue. And so it's... Um, everybody kind of coming in with their their own perspective and their own side to this conflict. But in the meantime, a lot of civilians are suffering um, because they're either caught in the crossfire or um, victims of the humanitarian crisis that continues to ravage the country. One of the interesting developments on Yemen has been the Iraq-mediated talks between Iranian and Saudi officials in Baghdad. And these conversations have been about Yemen. Do you see prospects for progress there in these talks, direct talks between Iran and Saudi? The Iranians and the Saudis have a very complicated relationship now. Um, so the, the Iranians are involved because the Houthis are viewed as an Iranian proxy, um, as well as other group, fringe groups um, in Yemen. And so uh, the Trump administration used to constantly hammer the Houthis and uh, accuse um, accuse Iran of of 
basically um, waging a war against Saudi Arabia vis-a-vis the Houthis. Um, and so that that is why the Iranians are, are, are involved in these talks. But um, the Saudis and the Iranians obviously have a very complicated relationship um, that dates back, uh, you know, to 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 times long before you and I were around. And, and even before that, I mean, it, it, it's almost ancient at this point. And so maybe I'm skeptical because I've spent a lot of time in that part of the world. Um, I, I don't see the Iranians and the Saudis shaking hands on pretty much anything um, anytime soon, but uh, maybe they'll surprise me. Um, for now, just the fact that they are meeting is significant. Um, obviously everybody wants a solution. Uh, to this, to the conflict, because uh, any disruptions in that part of the world, um, you know, they can impact trade, and the Gulf waters and a number of other factors, which all these countries have an interest in, obviously. And so um, nobody wants to see uh, this conflict um, escalate. But at the same time, all these countries also have Iran and Saudi in particular have their own domestic interests at heart when it comes to this, um, to the Yemen conflict. And so um, I, I hope for the best, <laughs> but um, if you'll forgive me for not, not being completely optimistic about it, because um, I've, I've just, uh, these two countries have a lot of differences that are so much more deeply rooted than the Yemen alone. And so it's hard to, it's hard to envision anything really uh, turning this around. Let's turn to Syria. UN humanitarian affairs chief Martin Griffiths last week said that Syria, after more than a decade of war, remains caught in a downward spiral and that the country will continue to be a place of tragedy so long as the conflict continues. Now, any political solution in Syria also involves Iran, just like is in Yemen, but also Russia. So what can we expect, if anything, regarding the process towards a political solution over the war in Syria? And if you could place it in the context of U.S.-Russian relations, do you see any traction there? So obviously the Russians are deeply rooted in Syria and any resolution that is to come um, from the Syria of the Syria con, uh, conflict has to involve the Russians, but the U.S. has also been heavily involved because obviously of its support to U.S.-backed forces in the North and whatnot. So you're, the Russians and the U.S. are going to have to talk. They, they started their discussions um, in Geneva earlier this year. Um, the deconfliction channels for the military still exist in terms of airstrikes and any kind of military operations that are going on there. So there is contact, but ultimately... Um, trying to find a solution uh, to the conflict is going to have to have all of these countries coming to the table in the way that we've seen with so many other conflicts. And by the way, this is the case also in Libya as well, where you have the Russians supporting one side and the U.S. sort of, well, the U.S. is hovering on Libya, so I'm not going to really, um, I'm not going to really uh, com- make that comparison, but there are a lot of interests at stake is, is the point that I'm trying to make. And so Um, Syria, definitely. um, At some point, the U.S. is going to have to sit with the Russians and try to find a solution, if not from the humanitarian perspective and also from the security perspective. Uh, The U.S. doesn't want to nation do any nation building. They don't want to kind of say Assad is the rightful leader. He's not the rightful leader. They kind of defer to um, the, the, the people of Syria for that decision. But we're now 10 years into this conflict and 
um, absent any drastic changes, there's going to have to be some sort of a settlement at some point, um, which perhaps the Biden administration will will take the lead on. And so um, it remains to be seen, but um, that's sort of at the heart why President Biden met with President Putin um, in Geneva on uh, in June. It's not just because of some of the election meddling and because of um, cyber attacks and, and other um, issues like that, but also a lot of strategic cooperation issues, counterterrorism issues. And that goes for, for Afghanistan too. Um, we, we work I don't want to say with the Russians, but um, in conjunction with the Russians on a number of different issues and Syria being kind of the for, uh, at the forefront of that. And so um, these countries are going to have to cooperate with each other, whether they like it or not. Vivian, we're running out of time. You teased my last question, which deals with Libya. And uh, this is uh, perhaps some relatively good news. Uh, compared to some of the other accounts and conflicts we've been talking about, the UN last year had a diplomatic breakthrough, really, by bringing together the warring parties on a unity government with a timetable to hold elections in December of this year. That's coming up fast. We had Stephanie Williams on the show a few weeks ago. She brokered the deal as acting UN envoy. How do you see the process playing out in Libya? And uh, do you think elections are going to be held and this fragile coalition government can hold together? The sense is that the Libyans have come to the point where they recognize that um, the situation is only set to get worse absent um, elections and some sort of political solution. And so you know, the, the elections obviously represent this opportunity for stability and unity in the country. And the warring factions do recognize that to a certain degree. But it comes, um, you know, as you say, at a time where it, things are very fragile, um, there are a number of countries, um, almost too many to list, that have opposing, um, the support of opposing factions in the country. And that's always a recipe for disaster, the Middle East being sort of guinea pig for for international intervention from different countries, which ultimately kind of leads to disaster. Libya is no different. And so you have the Egyptians who support General uh, Haftar, and you have the Russians who are supporting one side, and you have the Qataris who are supporting one side. And so um, there are too many to list, not to mention the Europeans um, who feel that Libya is on their doorstep and they support the UN-backed government in, in Tripoli. And it's it's been a long-standing conflict that um, that has only gotten worse over the years since um, uh, President Gaddafi was was overthrown and killed um, about a decade ago. And so now you have um, these these elections, and obviously um, uh, the ceasefire that came about last year potentially paving the way for some sort of political solution. And uh, the Biden administration, interestingly, has decided to take a back seat, um, as did the Trump administration to a degree. Um, I did a lot of stories um, during the Trump years about uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton, who had tried to at least get President Trump to engage with General Haftar um, to see if there was a way that they could show him at least some support enough that they would all parties would be engaged in the conflict um, in Libya. And that way, 
um, they'd find a political solution, but President Trump really had no um, real interest in that. And it fizzled when John Bolton was fired from, from his position. And so um, we sort of uh, went into limbo with regard to U.S. support for, for Libya. The, um, the Biden administration has been very supportive of talks, reconciliation talks and, 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 and talks to get these elections underway. But um, choosing sides has not really been there for today. And so it, it's interesting to see. I think the Biden administration kind of t- um, continuing the view from the from the years of the Obama administration during the Arab Spring, where they um, decided that taking picking sides um, in the Middle East um, potentially leads you to disaster uh, because you could pick um, the side of a leader that's overthrown the next day. And then um, you're seen as opposing the the new leaders and, and they don't really want to get involved in that that kind of politics. And so um, they've been supporting talks, they've been supporting elections, but not supporting any particular sides. And so, um, you know, that's that's sort of the U.S. position. Whether the Libyans kind of can carry this through, um, get it over the finish line, get elections and, and keep the peace after the elections, which is always key. Um, it, it's it's looking good so far, albeit with everybody holding their breath. Um, and so, you know, we hope um, that that um, that that these elections uh, signify a new era for 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 Libya, which has for now a decade just been completely unraveling by the day. Um, there's also one interesting note that I can uh, close with. I, I'd done a story with my my colleague in the Middle East last week about um, General Haftar uh, hiring lobbyists here in Washington to and and prominent lobbyists too including Lanny Davis who was uh, who represented president clinton uh, during the uh, impeachment inquiry uh, when he was president um, general haftar has been hiring lobbyists uh, essentially trying to improve his image um, in washington uh, among with the biden administration in particular ahead of the elections because he wants um, the administration to see him as something other than a warlord um, and perhaps a, a viable player in, in Libyan politics. And so he's been working hard um, behind the scenes with a $1 million contract to try to get that going as well. So um, we'll see if he's successful in that. But ultimately, this boils down to a, a positive and hopefully game-changing event for Libya in the coming months. Vivian, thank you for joining us today. Your columns are required reading. I always learn from your reporting and analysis, and we look forward to having you back soon on On the Middle East. It's my pleasure. We will return after this break. Hello, I'm uh, Gilles Kepel, professor at uh, Sciences Po and Normal Sup in Paris and author of a number of uh, books and articles on the Middle East. The Middle East remains one of the most vital and fascinating regions in the world. It is rich in complexity and ideas, but for many in the West, it remains a puzzle with many missing pieces. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East on the award-winning media service and monitor, We will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. To begin my podcast, I speak with my friend and one of the most renowned novelists of the region, Egyptian writer Ala El Eswani, about his latest book, The Republic of False Truths, that chronicles the run-up to Egypt's 2011 revolution and its aftermath. Reading the Middle East 
will be a fantastic addition to Al Manager's outstanding podcast lineup, including On the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amber Inzaman, and On Israel with Ben Kaspit. You can subscribe to all three Al Manager podcasts on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation. Thanks to our guest, Vivian Salama of The Wall Street Journal, our production team of Phil Calabro of All Monitor and Beowulf Rochland of Two Squared Media Productions. And thanks to all of you for listening. A reminder to look out next week for our newest podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can sign up for all of our podcasts, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, as well as On Israel with Ben Caspit and On the Middle East, hosted by Amber and Zaman and me, at your favorite podcast platform.